0: So I've got um, I've got two pieces of equipment here. One is the, the very famous now bat monitor. Oh. Um, so this translates bat into human. If we take that outside and there's a bat calling, you will hear It will translate it so we can hear it.
1: So I'm so, going to take that with us. So it's just like a little, looks like a little transistor radio, doesn't it? Does. It does. Yep. It's very
0: sleek. I think it's a very fine little thing. <laughs> Not too expensive. But because
1: bats bats are, have a special place in your heart, oh, isn't yes. It? I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and I'm heading out into the dark with ecologist Annette Lees, not just for fun, but to find out about the nightlife.
0: And the other thing we've got, I'll turn that one off, mm. um, is a, a torch with a red um, piece of cellophane on it. Yeah, That's because we don't want to have a bright light out there, a white light or a blue light. Um, red light won't interfere with our night vision,
1: so... We're looking up to the night sky a lot more these days with events like Matariki. That's got this connection to the environment, this connection to the weather, this connection to uh, remembering those who have passed, celebrating identity and who we are today and looking forward to the future so it's so much bigger than just stars really. And there's been a real growth in dark-sky tourism with the newer sanctuaries just launched in Wairarapa.
2: On my back lawn one night I was looking at the sky and saying, my God, that's the same sky as I've got in Tekapur. And I realised, strangely, that sky was exactly the same sky 800 years ago that Kūpē used to come to the Wairarapa.
1: But out in Annette's garden on Auckland's west coast – Something else is going on and it's not good. Light is bleeding into the dark nocturnal world and it's growing at an alarming rate. And it's written all about it in her book After Dark, Walking into the Nights of Aotearoa. Yeah, putting them on. So I'm here to find out what's going on and why there are calls for a law to control it. So do you know the time? Oh, it's about 10 o'clock, isn't it? Okay, so
0: let me come and explain to you about twilight. So um, once the sun has set, so the sun setting is basically, it just drops below the horizon. The next 30 minutes or so this time of the year is a time called civil twilight. From sunset to when the sun is about six degrees below the horizon. And you know it is that time when You know the sun's gone down, but it's perfectly light, so you can wander around and carry on with all your civil activities outside. Then the twilight deepens, and when it's about 12 degrees, the sun is getting well down below the horizon. Um, That's called nautical twilight, so you can still see the horizon in nautical twilight, and just the first stars, so you can navigate at sea. That's how it got its name. Full night is going to arrive in about 15 minutes. So, this time is astronomical twilight, and once it's gone, we'll have full night. Right. But mm. if you come over here, if we look to the east of here, that's Auckland City. So, if we might come down here a little bit. Hang on, wait. <laughs> so you we've got, got your no, night vision quite I in my yet. Have got night vision? I don't know. Yeah. yeah okay. There. I'm yeah. um, good. Right. So you can see a little bit of light. So Auckland City is um, quite a long way away on the far side of the Waitakere Ranges, um, but there's it's bleeding light up there. And we call that light trespass hmm. because that light in there is supposed to be lighting up some streets and the odd building. Um, if you were here 150 years ago, of course, you wouldn't be any of that light. Mm. And people were perfectly adequately getting about their business. Um, so we waste a lot of light. And on a night like tonight, it's actually reflecting back off the cloud. That's why you, there's an ambient light here that's um, it's quite strong.
1: It's quite it's surprising how strong it is. I, didn't, I totally didn't expect that.
0: No, but if you're in the house and we look out through the window, it looks pitch black, doesn't yeah. it? Auckland City isn't far, but its impact, like if you looked at this from a satellite, there's a big glow over this, this area. And um, it's incredibly disappointing because, I mean, for, at lots of levels, it's not a useful light. Um, you can have downward-facing low light, not of the blue spectrum. That's just enough to allow people to safely drive along the streets.
1: Because yeah. I must admit, when I told some a friend that I was coming to do this, she said, well, it's all very well to say that there's this light pollution, but what about it being safe at night for young women? Well, anybody really.
0: Mm. Well, um, light's don't change that so if you look at the stats of where crime happens it happens more more often in a brightly lit area than in a dark area Um, but I appreciate why especially young women don't feel safe Um, but that's not the problem of light that's Mm. a problem um, related to aggression and violence towards lots of young people not just women too but but you know those aren't that's not the main use of light um, it isn't just street lights. It's also the lights along motorways. And there are safety factors about how far lights need to be dispersed and so on. And I wouldn't argue with that. But the way they design those lights, the fact that they, sh- they need to be facing downwards, we need to remove the blue spectrum, which shouts daylight to all of us, including humans. Mm-hmm. And we, the, you can use different, you can use the softer, yellower, reddish lights, which won't do that to us. But also the big lit office towers and there's a lot of light that is escaping from homes. So at night we make sure that we close our curtains and keep the house dark because we have bats here and um, we want them to feel at home at night and flying around. Even in the city you're sharing the night with a lot of other creatures outside. So caring for them and thinking about them and being respectful of the sensory world they need to inhabit I think is really important. Yeah. We have a car coming down the valley yeah. at the moment and it's you can see how much those headlights are lighting up the trees all the way down. You don't see the impact of that on mm. the world. But, but yeah. what
1: does that matter? I mean, what um, does that well matter Well, it doesn't
0: matter if there's one car in a while, but... Last night we were coming home from a friend's place. We nearly hit a bat. It was flying down our valley and flew right in front of our windscreen. If that's a busy highway and there are a stream of cars, that becomes a gigantic, impassable wall for a bat. So a long-tailed bat has a habitat that's over 11,000 hectares in size. One bat. And they're tiny, tiny little animals. So they need... a a big area to roam. Um, but there are places where now he are keeping the motorways dark so f- to protect bats from passing oh, over.
1: Specifically for the bats?
0: Yeah, for the bats. But I want to talk to you about sound because this is the other thing that becomes acute for us when we can't see. And it's not actually that our ears, anything hormonal or different happens to our hearing. It's just when our big dominant Sense, which is our eyesight, is reduced, um, we strain to listen. It's a peaceful time, so there are different sounds. I don't know if you can hear the pulsing, sort of slightly singing insect. There's a few crickets. Mm. There's also the kiki ponamu, which is the Katie did. Yeah.
1: On her night walks, Annette also hears the ruru and the call of the kōkako, but it's the cook's petrol flying overhead on summer nights that she really fears for.
0: When they fledge from Hotu,du they are supposed to be flying off to, to make a world for themselves beyond in the Pacific, and they echolocate. So you can hear them, kack, 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 kack. Um, and they, the stream of them will fly above us around 9.30 each night in the summer. And they get attracted back to Auckland City and drawn down to the lights and they can't take off from the ground. They need a sea cliff with lots of breeze and wind to, to, for the, uh, to lift their wings and take them away. Mm. So once they're on the ground they can't move and then they are vulnerable to cats and dogs and being hit by cars. They're just wild creatures that are drawn to light um, inexorably. And but light see, is bad for them. They think it's daylight, but it isn't. Mm. So they think that they're landing on the sea surface and it's the night time. Mm. So those things, there are places in New Zealand like on um, near Punakaiki with the western black petrel and when those birds are fledging, they turn off the lights at that time of the year along, this, along the roads so that the birds won't get confused and they'll fly out to sea. So I think if we are aware of all of those rhythms in nature, what's going on, there could be times when we can light up and some Sometimes we should stay dark. And even times of the night. So the night I was describing before those twilights. Mm. But the night itself rises and falls. So, for example, there's a flush of hatching aquatic insects right at the beginning of night. And then one in the middle of the night and then one just before dawn. And so the, the bats will track that. They're flying and catching insects at those three times. So there's a rhythm in the night. Um, and same with plants, the um, the scent of plants is strong as at certain times of night and different temperatures, different times of the year. If you're alert to it, you're aware of it, you're sensitive to other animals and plants and their needs. Um, we can live much more companionably.
1: Well, before we do more nighttime exploring on Annette's property, I want to find out exactly what our brighter skies are doing to nature. Ecologist Alan Searad from Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology looks at the effects of what is pretty much
2: an unregulated pollutant. Well, there's been a long history of lighting, but in terms of relative to the evolutionary timescale that that we're talking about, how organisms have adapted to those cycles, it's it's a flash, right? This is just 150 years that we're talking about electric lighting and as opposed to a lot of the other types of contaminants, I guess, into the environment, like like pesticides or even noise, they are at least somewhat bound by regulation. Um, but for light, there is no really regulation in terms of trying to limit our emission of light into the environment. What have you seen specifically in terms of the impact
1: of of light pollution on the night sky in terms of the impact on
2: nature? Well, so I am an ecologist. I look at how plants and other organisms respond to their environment. And when I've looked at the effects of artificial light at night on plants, for example, you can see that when deciduous trees, if they grow under a street light, they hold on to their leaves in autumn much longer than those trees that are growing um, outside the the sphere of influence of a streetlight, mm. and the same a, in springtime, those trees that are growing directly under a under a streetlight, the the bud burst, the the leaves appear much earlier. So those trees that are illuminated have a much longer growing season, for example, than the trees that are not. That in and of itself might not be a, a bad thing. You know, the streets are greener a bit longer. But it also means that the growing season is extended and it won't be just the trees. It may also be the grasses, which then, um, if they also flower longer, it might affect the hay fever seasons. And also those trees that hold on to their leaves longer, they're much more susceptible to the reasons why trees are deciduous. For example, one of them is that that they get rid of their leaves before they can get frost damage. But that cue which is normally temperature, is now sort of overridden by the cue that light gives those trees to hold on to them longer, but they then become more susceptible to frost, and there's also indications that they may be more susceptible to fungal diseases and things like that.
1: And what would be the trickle-down effect of that, like on creatures that, I don't
2: know, live in in those trees? Exactly. That's the important thing, I think. Everything is dependent, I guess, on on the energy that the plants provide. So plants may also actually photosynthesize at night all of a sudden because there's enough light and there's certainly evidence for that, that instead of having a repair and recovery sort of phase, which, you know, we all need like sleep. um, So there's the interactions between plants and insects, for example, get disrupted. So um, if you light up the leaves of trees, then the insects that like to normally eat them may no longer like them because they're a bit tougher, perhaps not so palatable as they used to be. And there's also pollination that gets disrupted because it's not just plants that are affected, it's also the insects and all the other organisms that may be affected by artificial light at night. Those moths at night time, they might lay more eggs on the plants that are close to the light and therefore the the trees might... Um, suffer more herbivory damage. So there's all these sort of cascading effects, so to speak. We think that
1: in New Zealand that we've got good dark skies. I mean, two new uh, dark sky sanctuaries have just been added. And I know that you've spent time in Europe. How does New Zealand's night sky compare with
2: places in Europe? I was um, living in Christchurch for quite a long time and then I moved back to the Netherlands where I grew up and um we were based in the western parts of the country which is sort of between the big cities of amsterdam and the hague and rotterdam port and if you walk out into the into the paddocks you know fairly close to a house for example you would be able to take a book you can't see a streetlight anywhere near but you can read the book it's just so bright the sky glow so i didn't really realize when i was there until i went on a holiday to one of the outlying islands where I walked out at night and then I saw the night sky. I was like, My God, I've missed this. Mm. This is crazy. How how mm. how are we living and how how is this actually affecting our environment? And that's when I got into actually studying the effects of artificial light at night. Um, what we're actually doing with our 24-7 sort of economy to how is that impacting the world around us? And so I think that New Zealand is actually pretty lucky. But even in New Zealand, only 3% of the population live under a really, a truly dark sky, a pristine dark sky. And there's still about 5% of New Zealanders whose eyes never really switch to night vision because it's bright enough at any time of the night. And the growth of the extent of, of light at night in New Zealand is much faster than the global average in many other places in the world. Um, I've been looking at the trends of light pollution in New Zealand over time using satellite imagery. That the increase of the extent of area that is lit is more than 3.5% per year in New Zealand over the last 10 years. That means that over the last 10 years, there's been a 40% increase in the extent of the area that we're lighting up in New Zealand. That's much faster than the urban growth, for example, for um, example. And and so it's not just that that population is growing, or but we're just lighting much more and more. Do you get frustrated that
1: there's too much light and and that you can't see the night sky as much as you'd like to, or you you
2: know what's going on? So how does it make you feel? I live on the outskirts of Nelson, and um, not far away from us is an observatory, an astronomical observatory. It's a pretty dark part of this area, but. When I look out over over the bay, I can see Nelson Port, and it's extremely brightly lit all night. Yeah, I, I do think: do we really need that light? And, and and can we just maybe turn it down a little bit, and or turn you, it off if you, it's not in use? Sure. And have you approached the port and said, "Can you turn your light down?" I'm I'm working on those sort of things. It's pretty tricky, actually. People have fairly strong opinions about it, but it's partially because of. Their impressions, for example, about crime prevention, or in the case of the port, likely about safety of their workers, right? Mm. But I think can I ask you what's what's wrong with blue light? Different parts of the spectrum of light, there's different wavelengths, and the way that we perceive light is driven by the wavelength and the pigments that, that our eyes or the leaves, plants, photosynthetic pigments uh, receive that information and it's very much targeted to a specific wavelength. And so those uh, biological clock, the circadian rhythm that I was just talking about, receives cues from that spectrum of light. And it's been found in general that um, impacts of light at night are much reduced if the light is more towards amber and and red um, because it doesn't disrupt the, the physiological processes anywhere near as much as blue light does. Do you think that we actually need laws to control the amount of lighting at night? I think we do, yes. I think having some regulation in place which allows us to stop some of the excessive light that gets emitted and to actually install responsible lighting design from the first place when we're designing new developments. I think if that was actually uh, enforced or very much integral to how we design development and infrastructure, then we will have, stand a much better, better stead to keep New Zealand the way you described it. We're pretty dark, right?
0: The lovely thing about light pollution is you can turn it off at any minute. It's not like trying to bring back the huia that's extinct or anything. No. It's sitting up there. Like above us right now is the starry night. That's what's um, so exciting because any. Any place, anywhere on earth can become a dark sky sanctuary if you look, if you look after the quality of the night above you. Yeah.
1: Now we're so, walking
0: through here. I know. It's getting... Um, it's been Lehigh, a
1: flood. high grass
0: here. Yes, and we're heading and down to a stream. Don't so step in the middle. Yeah, that's okay. it. You got it. Right. Normally, in this stream, you can see all manner of things at night. I mean, sometimes you can even see glowworms. Oh, you can look. There are glowworms. Oh yeah. Oh, lovely. So we're going to head down there for, in a minute, but I just want to quickly have a look. And now you can see the sediment in that. Um, yeah. But it's been such a flood, you could hardly be hardly doubt it. But at night, normally there'd be little coda, the little freshwater crayfish in there. Mm. There's inanga, the whitebait, the, the uh, kokopu. There's tuna, the eels. Um, but it is full of life, and at night, that's when it's all of those animals' time.
2: Okay. Let's go and have
0: a look for those yeah. skyworms. Okay. So, aren't they beautiful? Yeah. They're actually related to the, a fungus gnat, a little vegetarian thing, but this, this is the only species that um, is a carnivore. They send down, it's a little lava that spins itself, something like a little hammock, and it drops down these very fine fishing lines, and then it dribbles this sticky kind of spit and it sits suspended above a place like this stream. So the hatching insects fly up towards the light like because they're heading for the stars and they get entangled in these threads and when they've caught something the little lava in the hammock pulls up the thread and then eats the insect that's attached to it and then drops it back down again. I think they live about eight months in that state and then they pupate and hatch and mate and then die within about a day.
1: If there was a lot of light here, would they not be able to do well, that? You can tell that that's a very, very faint light. It is one of the
0: Fano marama for Māori, so that is a, they're all related the moon and the stars and the planets mm-hmm. and the sun, um, but this is a very f- dim glimmer, incredibly faint glimmer. If you had a bright light anywhere near here, that light would not do its job for that animal
1: Do you imagine there's going to be a time, say in Auckland where you don't see that light trespassing?
0: I would like to think that people will become far more conscious of it I think it's more than just awareness I actually think it's a wondrous thing to be outside at night. Mm. And children love it. You can see the excitement, the thrill of it. And it's a dimension of the world. It's, it's half our lives. It's, yeah. a, it's the other side of the day. I just want people to go out and experience it. In places where they feel safe, if they don't feel safe on their own, they should go with a group of friends so and yeah. you can feel safe. And it, it will reawaken memories of childhood, or it will remind you of uh, something rather magical and special mm. um, and deeply natural that is going on around you that you're not aware of my belief is if you can get people experiencing that they'll, they'll become their own advocates for s- sheltering us from bright light mm. when they first introduced street lights back in I think the 1860s um, they used to never run them during the night of a full moon where it's a clear night because it was seen as a waste of, um, for start gas and then electricity um, and now, of course, if it's a brightly moonlit night, you wouldn't dream of turning off the streetlights.
1: <laughs> That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. William Saunders engineered today's episode. And our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Annette Lees and Alan Searad. Matiwa.